0: Bibles to 1st Timothy chapter 5 and if you need a Bible just lift up your hand and the ushers will bring you one and if you don't have a Bible you can keep the one that you are given make it your own so 1st Timothy chapter 5 we've all heard the phrase that Christianity is not a religion, it's a what? That's right, it's a relationship. And, And of course, whenever you hear that phrase or use that phrase, what you're seeking to say is that the Christian faith is not a series of do's and don'ts, duties and codes and laws and ethics, things that we do, but rather it's a relationship with the true and the living God. It's man being brought back into fellowship with God, thus a relationship that we have with God. And that is true. But I would dare to take it one step further, to say that Christianity is not a religion, but it is relationships. Because although it is true that we are, first of all, brought back into a right relationship, a right standing with God, the immediate byproduct of that relationship we have with God is a transformation in the relationship that we have with other people. This is a constant theme, a constant truth that we see on the pages of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. In the Ten Commandments, the law that was given through Moses to the whole world, the first four commandments had to do with man's relationship with God all things that had to do with how we relate to him. But the last six of the commandments all had to do with how man relates to man, not stealing, not coveting, not murdering, you know, honoring parents, you know, all dealing with our earthly relationships. When the great commandment was given by Jesus, he said the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. Speaks of the relationship that we have with God, the vertical, if you would. But then he said the second, the second greatest commandment is just like it. And that is that you're to love your neighbor as you love yourself. That is, the relationships that we have on the horizontal plane come as a reflection of that which we have on the vertical. Even the cross that Jesus was crucified on, it was not a coincidence, It was not just the means of execution in that day, and therefore by default it was a cross. But the cross itself is a parable. It's a picture for us of what the redemptive work of Christ accomplished. It first of all accomplished the greater beam, the vertical, man's relationship with God, bringing man into a relationship with God. But then also there was the cross beam where his hands were stretched out, thereby signifying that the cross also redeems our earthly relationships. As our relationship with God is set right and in place, it will be reflected in our relationships with other people. And so we see this throughout the Bible. Now, last week, in our study of the last verses of chapter 4, Paul exhorted Timothy to be an example of the believer. He said, be an example of the believer, a sample or a miniature picture, a pattern of Jesus Christ that when they look at you, they see Jesus. And then he gave to him four exhortations, four ingredients that would cause that to take place. And that's what we looked at in our study last week. But all four of those things had to do with our relationship with God. Being immersed in His Word. Being empowered by His Holy Spirit. Surrendering our lives completely and totally to Him, you know, as uh, we are exhorted to do. And then to take heed to ourselves that we're careful to be obedient to God's Word. All four of those things had to do with our relationship with God on the vertical. But as we come to chapter 5, now He's going to begin with the horizontal talking to us about what the believer looks like in his or her relationship or relationships with other people. And so, chapter 5 gives to us five vital characteristics necessary to be a good example of a believer in our earthly relationships. And if I were to put a title on this message, I would call it the five forsaken facets of the believer's behavior. The five forsaken facets of the believer's behavior. Because as we hear what Paul has to say to Timothy, we find that as we look around the church, these things are greatly lacking in, in the life of God's people as a general rule. You know, they certainly do exist. But it's a challenging thing for us as we begin to hear what Paul has to say. And so, five facets of the believer's behavior that we don't see too much. And the first one is right here in the first two verses of chapter 5. And that is, if you're taking notes, to honor your elders and also your youngers. Notice with me in verse 1. Paul writes and he says, Rebuke not an elder but entreat him as a father and the younger men as brethren the elder women as mothers the younger as sisters with all purity now you recall i pointed out to you last week that timothy was being sent by paul to a well established church to set things in order and we saw last week that Timothy was a relatively young man, probably in his late 30s, perhaps his early 40s. And he's being sent by Paul to a well-established church to institute changes, to make waves, to ruffle some feathers, you know, to do some things that might fly in the face of the tradition that is beginning to roll there in the church in that city. And in the role that Timothy is being put into, he's going to have to deal with a whole bunch of different types of people. He's going to be dealing with people that have been walking with the Lord perhaps longer than he has. He's going to have to deal with people that are perhaps more spiritually advanced or more spiritually mature than he is. He's going to have to deal with younger converts, younger men, people that are zealous still in that zeal stage of the faith where they know just about everything that has to do with the things of God. You know. He's going to have to deal with the women's ministry, the wives of the elders and the pastors and the, you know, the system that exists in churches on that plane. And he's also going to have to deal with younger women, which can be dangerous and also challenging. He has the whole spectrum that he has to deal with. And so Paul is exhorting Timothy in these verses, Timothy, you're going to need to use some wisdom. The only difference between you, Timothy, and them is your calling. Timothy is, he's a young man. He's sent by Paul. He's not Paul. And so Timothy's going to need to use some wisdom in dealing with these people. And Paul is essentially reminding Timothy that the objective is outcome, not authority. In other words, Timothy, don't go in with, you know, an iron fist and just declare with my name or my authority that this is the way things are going to be. But rather use wisdom. And so he breaks it down in these four things. He says to the older men, don't rebuke them. Don't put them in their place. Don't come across sharply or harshly, but rather entreat them as a father. Deal with them respectfully. The word entreat means to come alongside, to work with them, to partner up with them, to be gracious to them. Abraham Lincoln said these words. He said that if an older man and a younger man are in the same room at the same time, the older man should never mention it, but the younger man should never forget it. And the idea that he was putting forth, or the, you know, the, the phrase, the meaning of it, was basically, is that there ought to be a respect when a younger man is in the presence of an older man. That the younger man should never forget who he's in the presence of. Someone with more experience, someone who is an elder, someone who's more mature, who's been around a while. But yet, at the same time, the elder man should never mention it, not with an iron fist declaring with authority that he is over or older or better. It was just a good word. I believe that a lot of those lines of respect between the young and the old have eroded away in our culture, even in recent years. I mean, when I grew up just, you know, 25 years ago as a, as, you know, a a boy coming of age, we never would even dare think about calling an adult that was married by their first name. Not even if we put a mister before their first name. You know, and even still to this day, when I run into old neighbors or old teachers or old acquaintances of my parents, they are still Mr. Williams or Mr. Vanderwerk or, you know, Mrs. Smith. It's just I could never call them by their first name because if I did, I would get the proverbial rap in the beak you you know and I knew that and so I never did you know and and, and there was a respect and I I see in these days that we live in that there's an erosion of that respect that there's an arrogance oftentimes when a young man is in the same room as an old man is that that line of distinction of the gray head the respectfulness that comes with age is all but gone And there's an arrogant attitude often in youth. It shouldn't be. That's what Paul is saying to us. He's saying, listen, don't rebuke, don't come across arrogantly towards an old man, but entreat, come alongside, partner with, he says, as a father. And then he says, and the younger men as brethren. Now, I like that because, you know, you would never mouth off to your father, right? But sometimes you would to your brothers, right? You could be a little bit, a little bit more forthright, a little more pointed with your brother than you could with your father. But at the same time, though you might be a little more direct, you might speak a little more forthrightly, there was a brotherhood, there was a commitment that you had to one another that even though there might be you know, a moment where you know, there's words exchanged or something of that nature... After that was over, your brothers, there's love, there's unity, there's family. That it isn't just, you know, my way or the highway and you can pack sand, little brother. But rather, there's a respect, there's an honor. And I'm thankful that I have brothers like that in the faith. People that can speak forthrightly to me, and yet at the same time, I know that they love me perfectly. And Paul encouraging him. Then he says, the elder women as mothers, don't Get on the wrong side of the ladies' ministry, Timothy. He's warning. And that's just good wisdom for all of us, is to just respect older women and treat them as mothers with respect and love. And you know what you get in return? You get a mother. You get respect and love tenfold in return. And so treat them that way. And then finally, the younger women as sisters. And he says, he qualifies that, he says, with all purity the highest form of warning that can be given should be given to young men and old men in the church in how you deal with and how you relate with sisters in the lord in the body of christ be very careful because satan can destroy churches he can destroy families he can destroy lives by an innocent friendship that ought not to be I often counsel young people when I see them getting into uh, relationships, uh, you know, that have the appearance of boyfriend, girlfriend, you know, and sometimes at the age of 15 or 16 years old. And sometimes I'll pull them aside and, you know, if I feel like they're, that they have a heart for the Lord or if they fear the Lord at all, I'll pull them aside and they'll say, hey, where is this relationship heading? And they'll say, well, what, what do you mean? And they'll say, well, are you going to get married? Are you going to marry him or are you going to marry her? And they'll say, well, I'm 16 years old, or I'm 15 years old. I'm, I'm not even thinking about marriage. And my reply will be, listen, your relationship with that person is going to lead to one of two places. It's either going to lead to marriage, or it's going to lead to premarital sex. And if you're not in a position to get married, then what does that leave? You know, and, and, and oftentimes it takes them back, and they consider, and they stop and say, whoa, wait, there's something to think about here. The same thing is true for a married man who has a friend that's just another sister, another woman. Be careful, men, with all purity. It means to be chaste or covered. And it doesn't speak of your clothing. It speaks of your soul. Don't bear your soul to someone who's not your wife or someone who's not your husband. Because after you connect on a soul, friendship, spiritual level, it's only a little bit of space until you fall into adultery. And so be careful, beware, the warning comes. And so he gives to them this exhortation that there is to be honor. A believer that is an ambassador and an example of Jesus Christ will honor the people around him or around her in the body of Christ and out of it. And so he, he urges him to honor. The second forgotten facet that he brings up next is benevolence amongst widows, and also the helpless. Not just widows, but also the helpless. Now, he spends a lot of time on this one. The majority of the chapter is dedicated to Paul instructing Timothy in this manner. Verses 3 all the way down to verse 16, Paul instructs concerning this. He says a lot. I believe that benevolence, and this issue of Christian charity sharing giving helping people is probably one of the areas where the church of jesus christ is the weakest today that it's the most forgotten aspect of christianity or of the church today and i I believe that that has happened for two very practical reasons the first one is that the government has been more than happy to shoulder the burden of it the burden of taking care of the poor and the needy, and the helpless, has kind of rolled off the back of the church, and it's kind of fallen onto the shoulders of the government, and the church is, is is almost okay with that. Well, we don't have to deal with it. It's not our problem anymore. That need is being met, and so we can now give ourselves to other things. The church is okay with that. Also, the government is okay with that. Because, hey, it means that we have the ability to tax more. It means that we have the ability to increase our power base our authority that we have in people's lives we can use this as a leverage point to gain you know election uh votes and 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 you know political persuasiveness and all and all of that and so the governments are happy to do that because it's not their money they're gonna take it from the rest of the people and they'll give it to whoever wants and they reap the benefits of it so they're happy about that and certainly satan has no problem with it either Because what he's been able to effectively do is take the church off of the benevolent scene and thereby keep us from doing any good in that arena. And at the same time, he is now able to give people that will take anything that they want without ever helping them in a way that God would help them in God's prescribed way. And so he can then use it to destroy people's lives, He can use it to bring up civil disputes, and he can use it to divide and weaken nations. And so Satan is just as happy as anybody else. And so everybody's happy about it. The church is happy about it. The government is happy about it. Satan's happy about it. And it just kind of fell off of the church, and it rolled onto the government. So the church has forgotten about it. The other reason I believe that the church has kind of just given up in this area of benevolence is because any time a church steps forward with any type of benevolent program or they want to help out they risk being branded politically they risk sending a political message or Showing that they are more in tune with a political party on one side of an aisle or on another, and churches don 't want to do that they do, they want to stay neutral in that and and so sometimes churches will avoid that arena for that reason, and so we see it a weakness excuse me <coughs> in the church today. What does the Bible say? The Bible says that the poor the needy and the helpless have a very important place in the heart of God. That God has great concern for those that have need. You cannot open the Bible without seeing somewhere God giving exhortation that he has a heart for, he desires the poor to be taken care of, and he puts the burden upon his people to shoulder it. And he does that willingly and strategically and with good will, good intention. And so, as Christians, we cannot just say, well, benevolence is being taken care of socially, politically, in the government, and so we. No, we can't do that because God has put it in us to do it. We're to be benevolent, and we must maintain an attitude of benevolence. And so, in these verses, Paul gives to us some practical instruction because here's what happens is that someone is moved in their heart to help. And immediately, if they're not careful, if they don't understand, the whole world of burdens will fall upon their shoulders, and they'll want to meet all of it. And no one can meet all of it. No church can meet all of the needs. So how do you know who to help, when to help, and why to help? That's what Paul discusses here in these verses and what he gives to us is what i see you may see more but i see four things four guidelines if you're a person who wants to help what are some things that we consider when we want to step into this thing the first thing that he tells us right there in verse three is that benevolence should always be for those that are truly needy look in verse three he says honor widows that are widows indeed The word honor there is where we get the word honorarium. And it means to support financially. And so he's talking about supporting widows financially. Now, this was huge in the early church. The first social program that the early church started was the poor widows in Jerusalem. You remember Acts chapter 6, when the first deacons were appointed. It was to make sure that the widows all received their daily administration or their daily support. Now, that ideal translated into all the other churches of that time. And so to help widows was a huge aspect of what the church did, not just in Jerusalem, but also throughout the whole first century. And that was good. But the problem was is that because it was such a big program and it was so well known and it was so important, it became a breeding ground for corruption and for people making false claims, if you would, or using the system, taking advantage of the benevolent Christians in order to, you know, just pay the bills. But yet it wasn't really necessary that the church should have that burden. And so Paul says, honor widows... But then he qualifies that by saying, that are widows indeed, meaning make sure you know what's going on in the life of a person before you agree to support them and to help them. Now that goes for widows then, but it also goes as we would be benevolent to anyone now. Is that you should? It's just practical wisdom that you should know what's going on in the life of the person or the people or the missions organization or whatever it is that you're going to support. You should make sure that there actually is a need. That you're not just, you know, giving support to something that doesn't need support. And especially as a church, Paul is saying, honor the widows, but that they're widows indeed. The second thing that he brings to our attention in the next verse, in verse 4, is that, and listen carefully, benevolence, biblically, is always the responsibility of the family first. Notice in verse 4, he says, but if any widow have children or nephews, and that word nephews in the Greek, it means descendants. So it would include grandchildren or anyone else, extended family. He says, let them first learn to show piety at home and to requite or repay their parents for that is good and acceptable before God. That the burden of benevolence always falls upon family first. That is the way of God. There is no substitution for the family unit in any social government or otherwise program that exists in the world there's no substitution for the family whether it's in benevolence or in any other arena when god designed the family he designed the perfect unit the perfect system and so it's always to be the responsibility of the family first to do these things now often a a greedy son or a busy son or a cash strapped son or daughter would sooner place his widow's mother on the church's role than he would take care of her himself jesus brought this up didn't he when he indicted the pharisees he he says hey the scripture says honor your father and your mother but you guys you pharisees you religious zealots you say it is korban which means that this money is dedicated to god And so I'm not using it to support my widowed mother. And you think that because you say it's dedicated to God, that now you don't have to obey God's word. You're hypocrites, Jesus said. It's always the responsibility of family first. Now, in this, in this principle of family first, there is such a gem of wisdom in the mind and the heart and the knowledge of God. Is that oftentimes when someone comes for help, and let's move out of the arena of widows for a minute, and let's put it in your arena Someone comes to you and they ask you for help, or, or someone comes even to the church and they ask for financial help, and you say to them, "Do you have any family that can help you and they go "Oh uh, um uh well uh no no really do you, is there anybody is there anybody well i i mean my my dad is a billionaire but 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 I'm not going to him for help i, I I'm not going well w- why not because you, know, you just don't know my father. I, I'm not doing that. Or you don't know my uncle. You don't. You know. And, and, and here's what happens: is that you say, "Well, go talk to them first. and the person says, "I'd rather get a job." <laughs> Bingo! <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so God, very wise, He knows that people. Our nature is that we would much rather come to an anonymous donor, someone who can go unnamed, unknown, as our bailout, our helper, than we would go to our family. Our family is going to hold us accountable. Our family is going to talk to us about the things that are going on in our life, a lot more than a friend will or even church family. And so it's always the family's responsibility first. It would often solve the problem to just send someone, hey, go talk to your family. Things would be set right in an order in a person's life very quickly. Number three, Paul goes on to say in verse five, the third, uh, you know, guideline in terms of this is that to be very sure that when you support or help someone, that you are not supporting a sinful lifestyle. That when you support, you're not supporting a sinful lifestyle. Notice verse five. He says, Now she that is a widow indeed, That is, this is someone, Timothy, that you should help. These are the qualities she will possess. That first of all, she is desolate, meaning that she truly has no other recourse. There's no family, there's no social security, in any regard that she can fall back upon is that she has nothing. She's truly desolate. Second of all, she trusteth in God. That is, she's saved. She believes in God. She's a servant of God. She knows for a fact that she's born again and that she's going to heaven. And therefore, you know that she is submitted to the ways of God and the word of God. And then also, he says, that she continueth in supplications and prayers night and day. That is that she's a person who prays. Now, you can't find out these qualities about a person's life unless you spend some time talking to them. Unless you spend some time getting to know them. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, you need to pry a little bit. You need to know who it is that you're supporting and what's going on in their life. And then he gives the contrast in verse 6. Notice. He says, But she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she lives. That is, there are those that will use the support that you're giving to simply supply for a sinful lifestyle. They're going to take advantage of your benevolent heart and your Christian giving, your desire to represent and reflect Jesus Christ, and they're going to take and then consume that upon things that are contrary to the word and the ways of God. Did you put the picture up already? I didn't even say it yet. I saw it come up in the the screen. Case in point, here here it comes. Now you're primed. Everybody sits up. You know what's coming. Case in point. This was a a picture that my father sent me via email of a receipt that was found in a parking lot. You could put it up. Go ahead. Put it up there. I, I know that the resolution isn't perfect, but if you notice, there's five cases of Mountain Dew, six cold water lobsters, two porterhouse steaks, and it was paid for with food stamps. (laughs) <laughs> now that's taking advantage of the system if you ask me <laughs> you know? i'm not on food stamps i don't get to eat that stuff you know <laughs> and 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 so but but this is what paul is getting at when, when he's talking about make sure you know what the money you're giving where the support you're lending what it's going to because there are people that will take advantage simply to supply for a sinful lifestyle and 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 you don't want to do that because notice in verse 7 with me he says and these things give in charge that they may be blameless because if a person takes the support they're getting from the church or from you or from a benevolent christian and they use them on things that are contrary to God, what they are doing is that they are adding sin to a bad situation already. And it can only result in further demise, further desolation for them. And so, Timothy, don't give it to them. If you suspect, if you feel that the money isn't being used properly, don't do it. And then finally, uh, then of course in verse 8, he reiterates the importance of family for the second time. He says, but if any, provide not for his own. And especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. That it is imperative in the mind and in the economy of God that we be taking care of our family first or looking to our family first before we would put the burden upon the church. Now, the fourth thing that Paul deals with in the final verses of this segment The fourth guideline, as far as benevolence is concerned, is that make sure in your benevolence that you are not interfering or interrupting God's plan or God's work in someone's life. Make sure that by helping them, you are not interfering with God's work and God's plan in their life. Notice the contrast that he puts here. Look in verse 9. He says, Let a widow... Be taken into the number, I'm sorry, let not a widow be taken into the number under threescore years old. That is, under the age of 60. Now, in that day, that was a woman who was well on in years. Notice what he says about her at the age of 60. He says that she had been the wife of one man, well reported of for good works. If she have brought up children, if she have lodged strangers, if she have washed the saints' feet, if she have relieved the afflicted, if she have diligently followed every good work. Notice that all of these qualifications that he placed upon this woman are in the past tense. This widow that is to be supported is well into the downswing of her life. She's already been faithful in, you know, in her marriage. And she has done. She's proven herself to be all of these things. And this, this woman, there, God has worked in her life. She has finished her course. And she is essentially in God's waiting room. She's waiting to die. And, and she is the kind of woman that is to be brought into the, you know, into the number. She's to be supported. But notice the contrast that he gives in verse 11. He says, but the younger widows refuse for when they have begun to wax wanton. I love that, this language, don't you? Against Christ, they will marry having damnation because they have cast off their first faith. And and the word damnation there doesn't mean that she won't be saved or that she's forsaking her salvation, but it, it simply means that being guilty. That in her in her grief over losing her husband, she said, I'm never going to marry again. And, and, and my, I'm, I'm living only for Jesus now. But Paul says that that will fade away. And, and, and what will be revealed is that this woman, in contrast to the one that we already saw, this one still has life left. She still has energy. She still has zeal. She still has something there. She's got something to give. She can still bear children, Paul is going to say. He goes on and he says, verse 13, this is what's going to happen to that woman if you support her. It says, And with all, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but tattlers also, and busybodies, speaking things which they ought not. They're going to have problems. If you support this person, who still has something to do, that God still has something for, and you go underneath and you remove them from the path that God has them on, then you are going to cause them to become idle, to become busybodies, to become tattlers, because they're going to have too much time and too much energy, and it's going to be too easy for them, and it's going to cause problems. And so he says, verse 14, I will therefore that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully, for some have already turned aside after Satan. Now listen, the purpose of benevolence, the purpose of the church supporting widows, the purpose of you, out of the kindness of Christ in your heart, helping someone out financially the purpose in God's mind behind calling us to do that is that we might help people. And by helping them, it doesn't mean taking care of all of their problems for them. What it means is helping them to get back on their feet and into a course of life wherein they can be productive and fruitful for the kingdom of God. That's always God's heart and God's mind in... in, in, you know, in in the church helping someone to get on their feet is that they might find their way back into or into the perfect will of God. Now, listen carefully to me. There are times when a person is in a rough situation, not because they just fell on hard times, but because God is doing something specifically in their life To refine them or to test them or to in some way move them where they're supposed to be for the purpose of his plan in their life. And so sometimes poverty, difficulty, desolateness, as Paul calls it, sometimes those things are God's hand in the person's life so that they will grow or discover what it is that God has for them. And if you in benevolence, go in and say, I will support you. I will help you. I will take care of you. You could be in danger of upsetting the work that God is doing within their life. And so you must be careful. We must be careful that we are not interfering with what God is doing in someone's life. A few years ago, my daughters got into raising uh, butterflies, monarch butterflies. And so they sent away for the little rainbow monarch caterpillars you know and they got some milkweed plants and and and, and they watched these things, and it was fascinating i mean it's quite a fast cycle you know so you watch these caterpillars just balloon they go from you know about a millimeter in length to like two or three inches and you know about a centimeter thick fairly quickly and they're beautiful caterpillars and then you watch they hang on the the milkweed leaf and they form the chrysalis and now you've got a cocoon you know this thing just hanging there and you just wait and you watch it it starts bright green and then it slowly gets darker and darker and darker and darker and darker and then the day comes and you can see the colorful monarch wings almost transparently emanating through the you know membrane thin chrysalis at this point and you just see that any minute now the butterfly is going to come out it's going to make its way what if One of my daughters, or me, it wouldn't be them, it would be me, said, you know what, I don't want to wait for this any longer. You know, I'm sitting here, I want to see this happen. And so I take an X-Acto knife, super, super sharp, and with surgeon-like precision, I go and I just score the edge of that chrysalis, ever so careful not to touch the butterfly, but I'm helping. I'm just helping the process along a little bit by, by doing this. And so I just score the thing, and I peel back you know the membrane just enough so that the butterfly and and i see you know it's begin to you know open up and expand its wings and it stands upon the edge of the chrysalis and and just as it's about to to spread its wings and take off in flight guess what happens it drops to the ground paralyzed He said, whoa wait wait a minute how could you be paralyzed i helped you how is it that, that you're not able to fly that you're not able to fulfill your destiny i helped you what what's going on why is this happening here's why it's because you're not god and god in his perfect wisdom coated the inside of that chrysalis membrane with an enzyme and when that butterfly struggles when it begins to realize, you know, I'm cramped in this space and I need to, I, I, there's something more for me and I don't, I feel like I'm cramped and what's going on? And it begins to, it begins to flail and flap and try to get itself free. When, when it begins to do that, that enzyme is dispersed upon its wings and it strengthens them and enables them to fly. So that when that membrane is opened up and that butterfly begins now to flap, the strength That it needs is there and it can now go on with its life. It is possible, Christian, for you and I to help someone in such a way that we are crippling them for the plan that God has for their future. And that's the heart of what Paul is getting at here when he talks about refusing. And so this is what he tells Timothy that he's to do when he suspects this. He says, Refuse, say no. It's the hardest thing to do. When you're faced with someone that has a need, to look them in the eye and say, you know what, I just know that God has something for you and for me to help you in this way right now is going to upset what God is doing in your life. And so I've got to say, no, I cannot help you. But it's necessary sometimes. And then as he closes out this segment in verse 16, for the third time, now he brings this up. He says, if any man or woman that believes have widows, let them relieve them and let not the church be charged that it may relieve them that are widows indeed let it be upon the family now in this arena of benevolence as we wrap up this point and move on to the next paul is giving to us guidelines things to consider things to think through as it pertains to our benevolence these are not reasons why we should not be benevolent, or reasons why we should just allow the government to continue. They're just things to help us, to give us wisdom in our decisions and what we're to do. We're to have a benevolent mindset. If there's an error to be made, error on the side of benevolence. That's the rule. How are you doing in this, Christian? How would you rate, or how would God rate, moreover, your benevolence as he would look upon your life? Do you and your family have some way of support, have some way that you reach out, some way that you give of what you have to those that have need? Are you a benevolent person? I think it's a good idea for us individually, maybe for our families, for our kids to see us doing that, for our kids to see us reaching out outside of ourselves, outside of our world and giving to those that have need. I think if you're a part of a home group, that's a great way that you can, as a a group, come together and reach outside of yourselves and not become introverted. To to find out who, maybe, what family somewhere at someone's job or someone in the church or someone in the neighborhood really has a need and part of your home group, get together and put together a pool and just help people out. Be benevolent. I think it's an area that the church is incredibly weak, and yet it's something that God desires and that God will bless. And so we're to be benevolent, Paul says. Then he moves on uh, into our... I know that I said five, and there are five, but that was the long one. You saw all the verses I had to get through there, so don't worry. Um, But number three, uh, the third forgotten or forsaken facet of the believer's behavior is respect for good pastors and elders. Notice in verse 17. He says, Let the elders that rule well... Be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. What he's saying there is that if you have a good pastor or good elders, a good leadership team that's in your church, then in your mind, esteem them to be worth double honor. Again, that word honor is honorarium or, you know, it speaks of the financial support. If you have a good pastor, consider them to be worthy of double what they're getting paid. And then he defines what a good pastor or what a good eldership or good leadership team is. It says, when they labor in the word and in doctrine. And then he defines that with two scriptural references in verse 18. He says, for the scripture saith, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. Now that just clears it up for everyone, right? Now you know what a pastor, a good pastor is, an ox that treads out the corn. No, but but literally what this speaks of in Old Testament times, this is actually scripture. It's Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. And this is what God said word for word. He said, do not muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. And Paul essentially is saying, he's not talking about cows. He's talking about pastors, you know we just sit up here mooing and no but they would use oxen as instruments of threshing and here's how that would work is that when they would bring in the sheaves from the harvest or the husks of corn they would place them upon the threshing floor there in their barn and the threshing floor was usually high up on a hill somewhere where there was a strong breeze and the barn would be open on both ends And one of the options for threshing was to use your ox. And the ox would come in, and here's what the ox would do. He would just simply walk back and forth upon the wheat, upon the grain, or upon the corn. He would just tread it. He would just tread and just keep walking. And hour after hour, the farmer would just walk his ox, and the weight of the ox would crack the chaff that was surrounding the wheat, and it would release what was useful from that which was not. And so after the ox had tread out the corn for a certain period of time, he would remove the ox, and then he would wait for a breeze to come through. And he would begin taking, you know, armfuls of this harvest, this, you know, precious seed and he would begin throwing it up in the air and as the breeze would come through the barn it would blow away the chaff and the useless part of what was protecting that wheat but the the weightiness the wheat would just drop to the ground and so the wind would be blowing and, and he'd be throwing it up and, and what would be left when he was finished was just the harvested useful product that is what would remain and then he would just package that up and he would bring it to market or he would bring it into his storehouse and then that was the useful part and Paul is saying that that essentially is the job of a good pastor A, a, a good pastor is one who takes the raw material of the word and just hour after hour just treads it walks over it meditates in it breaks it down removes the chaff that which is not useful and then After sufficiently breaking it down and chewing it up and separating it all apart, now he just waits. He waits for the moving of the spirit and he begins to lift up his message. He begins to lift it up barrel by barrel, throwing it to the heavens, if you would. And then the the spirit of God moves upon it and just removes everything that's useless, everything that's without weight, without substance, just takes it out. And then what falls back to the ground is only that which is useful. And so that by the time people come to hear the word and hear the doctrine, they're not receiving chaff. They're not receiving that which is not useful, but that's been sufficiently tread upon. It's been lifted up. It's been prayed for. It's been blown over by the Spirit of God. And now it's something that's useful and edifying and profitable to the people of God. And what Paul is saying is that if you have a pastor or pastors or elders like that, then in your mind, esteem them to be worth double what they're getting paid. He's not saying pay them double. I wish he was. he's saying, esteem them to be worth double what they're getting because that's a good pastor. That's what they're to be about. And so he's saying, esteem them highly. Now, not only in their worth, but also esteem them in their warfare. Notice verse 19. He says, against an elder, receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Don't receive an accusation against an elder except before two or three. Understand that if a man is called by God to be in the ministry, there is a target upon his back. and One of the favorite tools of Satan to try to bring him down is slander. Someone will just rail an accusation against him. And, and, And by doing that, if he can make that work, then he damages that preacher's reputation first of all and then he also damages the people's ability to receive from him and so he's made that ministry useless and Paul says that the way that you combat against that is that you don't receive it you just settle it in your mind that if an accusation comes that's unsubstantiated that's just hearsay or gossip I'm just not going to listen to it I'm not going to let that have any place in me at all whatsoever I'm just going to disregard that it's not real it doesn't exist There are pulpits today that are occupied by people that should not be in them. We all know that to be true. But if a man is called by God to be in a pulpit and he's in it, then he's in the pulpit because it's the call of God upon his life. And I know that sounds trite or cute or, you know, you say, well, yeah, duh. If he's he's in the pulpit because he's called, he's there because he's called. Yes, that's true. But listen, here's the point. Is that no matter what it might appear like from the outside looking in, that's not an easy call. It's not an easy life. And so Paul is saying, support them in their warfare. Don't receive a, a useless accusation. You say, well, what if they really did sin? What if they're guilty? Well, that's what he deals with next, he says in verse 20. And this is number four, by the way, if you're taking notes, the fourth facet. And that is the fear of God and holiness. The fourth forgotten facet is the fear of God and holiness. He says, them that sin, and he's still talking in the context of elders. He says, rebuke before all that others also may fear. Now, the word sin there doesn't mean every time he sticks his gum under the seat. Because I've been at conferences with Bobby where he does that, you know. <laughs> and I've done it. You know, who hasn't done it? You know, I, the seat's here. You know they got, That's not what it's talking about. The point is not. The point is not every time he does something wrong, oh, oh we're going to rebuke the pastor or rebuke someone. No, 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 no. The idea is that it's transgression is that there's a moral issue that goes to the depth of the character that reveals deep, unrepentant wickedness and that that man shouldn't be. That's what it's talking about. And he says, them that sin in that way, they fall. He says, rebuke them before all. And why would you do that? He says, so that others may fear. So that others may fear. One of the greatest things that's lacking in Christian people today is a healthy fear of God. To realize that there's consequences for sin. To recognize the, the, you know, uh, the, that I can't sin and just get away with it. And so if, if someone is rebuked publicly, it's a great deterrent. If you hear of someone's sin, it helps you to not sin, to not give yourself to sin. Did you know this? I know we got to wrap it up. I'm starting to get my auctioneer voice because we've got to get through this text. You know, But did you know that Verizon Wireless keeps every text message that is sent for a period of two years. And they're lobbying right now to require them to hold on to them for 10 years and make them accessible to law enforcement. Now, knowing that, doesn't it make you think twice about what you put in a text message? I mean, even if you're not texting things you shouldn't be texting, you know, it still makes you think, whoa, you know, this is going to be seen by someone. And that's the idea here is that when you realize that sin has consequences in leadership, you recognize sin also has consequences in my life. And so it causes me to think twice about the things that I do. That's why the the psalmist says, Psalm 111, verse 10, it says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom is knowing what to do. It's making good, good choices. And when a person has a healthy fear of God, it helps them make good choices. You cannot be a good example of Christ If you do not have a healthy fear of God. And so it's vital. It's necessary. He moves on. He says, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without preferring one before another. Doing nothing by partiality. Lay hands suddenly. And that speaks of ordination. Ordaining someone too quickly. He says, On no man neither be partaker of other men's sins, keep thyself pure. Don't be too quick to appoint leadership. Wait for them to be proven. Wait for them to be tried. And then he says, after saying keep thyself pure, he says something very parenthetical and very personal to Timothy. He says, drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. In those days, there was two types of alcohol. There was what they called strong drink, which is the equivalent of what we call wine. It was simply crushed grapes that were fermented and then served. It was strong drink. It was undiluted. But what they called wine was strong drink that was diluted three parts wine to six parts water. So that means you would take three cups of the wine and then six cups of water and you would mix that and that's what they would use as table wine. And so it was two-thirds, you know, it was diluted uh, in that way and it was served that way and it was served, you know, that's what Jesus would have drunk at the feasts and that kind of a thing. And it's very difficult to get drunk on a glass of wine that's diluted in that way. And so this is not Paul saying to Timothy, hey Tim, it's okay, relax and have a beer. That's not what he's saying to him. He's saying, Timothy, you have a problem with the water. It's reacting with your system. Use a little wine. The enzymes, the probiotics, it will kill the things that are harming you, and you'll feel better. Don't worry about violating your purity. It's okay to use a little wine. To you and I, he would say this. Drink bottled water. (laughs) If you're having problems with the water, drink bottled water you know he wouldn't say this you know so is it okay for a christian to to have a glass of wine yes absolutely i'm not telling you that you can't have a glass of wine or you you know i can tell you that the bible forbids drunkenness he says some men's sins are open beforehand going before to judgment and some men they follow after the point is as he as he talks about the fear of god is that you can't get away with anything is that everything will be revealed. Some will be revealed before the judgment, and some will be revealed afterwards. But you're not going to get away with it. A fear of God is a healthy thing. Likewise also, good works of some are manifest beforehand, and they that are otherwise cannot be hid. And then uh, the first two verses of chapter 6 is number 5 very quickly, is the fifth forgotten facet of Christians' uh, behavior is reverence towards their employers. He says, let as many servants as are under the yoke. That means employees that are feeling the burden. Are you feeling the burden in your employment situation? Is the weight of responsibility overwhelming? Is the club of the iron fist of your employer falling down upon you? Are you a servant that's under the yoke? What does Paul tell you to do? He says, let them count their masters worthy of all honor. Let them count their masters worthy of all honor. That means if you're in that situation, if that's you, then this is what God would have you to do. Don't complain. Don't insult your boss in the break room. Don't ridicule and complain about the way things are going. Don't be that guy. You say, but, but, but. No, no, you're under the yoke. Paul's already acknowledged that it's not easy. Hey, no bull, no calf, no donkey ever wanted to be under the yoke. If they could choose, hey, you want to be yoked or you want to sit in the barn? None of them would say, oh, please, can I get the yoke? Please, can I pull that donkey around? You know, none of them would say that, you know. And so it's not pleasant, but he says, this is what you're to do. Count them worthy of all honor. Don't get drawn into the conversation of complaining. The mindset of grumbling and murmuring. Don't do it. Why not? You say, why not? Here's why. He says, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. God says, for my sake. Because you're an example and an ambassador of me. And there is no greater witness than a person in poor or less than desirable working conditions that gives honor and glory to God and to their employer, even though it's unpleasant. And then he says, and they that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. He says, these things teach and exhort. So these are the relational values that Paul places upon the Christian. He says that we're to honor our elders and our youngers. He says that we're to be benevolent in our attitude and in our mindset towards others. He says that we're to have respect for and honor, uh, revere good pastors. He says that we're to fear the Lord and holiness and to keep ourselves pure. And then he tells us that we should have reverence for our employers. You say, well, why are these things important and worthy of a Bible study that's now been an hour long? Here's why. Because we are called to be God's ambassadors in this world. this is what he wants he's called us to be examples of himself and he says this is how your life will best exemplify me let's pray together Mm -hmm. father we thank you tonight for this word we thank you that you've given us this high and holy calling of being your ambassadors of being called by your name of holding this privilege of carrying this light of being a city that's set on a hill that cannot be hid. And so we ask tonight that you would take, Lord, the things that we've heard, perhaps the things that have rubbed us the wrong way or convicted us in our hearts, because we lack them greatly, and that you would make us what you would have us to be. For the word of God declares that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking those whose hearts are perfect towards Him, that he might show himself strong on their behalf. So I pray tonight, dear Lord, that you would set your eyes, fasten them upon this congregation and find us, Lord, we pray, in a place where our hearts and lives are absolutely surrendered to you and that we would be all that you would have us to be. So empower and equip us now and send us forth with your joy and your strength. We might be those men and women that rightly represent We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.